0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. It's the Anthropology Channel of New Books Network. Welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Yadong Li, a host of New Books Network Anthropology and a PhD student in anthropology at Chile University. Medicine as a realm directly linked to human beings, left and death to our desperation and hope is getting more and more attention in social science. Medical anthropologist Christina Popp through her long-term participant observations and trenching analysis aims to answer a practical question in public health. Why does Romanian women have the highest cervical cancer incidence in the European region? To answer this question, she delves into Romania's communist past, explores the changes brought by marketization and neoliberalization, collects data through long-term fieldwork, in-depth interviews, focus group, and most interestingly, through documenting medical rumors. Her new book shows how anthropologists can effectively respond to public health issues and provide insights to medical practitioners and policy makers. Today, I'm very pleased to have this talk with her. Welcome to our podcast, Professor Paul.
0: Thank you, Adong. I'm really excited to be here with you and talk about my book, um... And uh, I'm also excited because you are also working with my former supervisor at Tulane University, my
1: alma mater. Yeah, exactly. So it's my pleasure to have this opportunity. Uh, This new book, The Cancer Within, Reproduction, Cultural Transformation, and Healthcare in Romania is published by Rutgers University Press in 2022. Professor Christina Popp is assistant professor in the anthropology department at Creighton University in Nebraska. Her research interests include gender, reproductive health, vaccination campaigns, the neoliberalization of post-communist Eastern Europe, and discourse analyses. So, before we talk about your book, I think it's always helpful for the audience to learn more about the author. So Christina, Christina, could you please talk a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. Although you already mentioned, I think the most important things about me. So I am a medical anthropologist and a linguist uh, and my research and teaching interests revolve around reproductive health and healthcare, uh, post-communist social and cultural changes, uh, medical care reforms, discourse analysis, and more recently, ethnographic fiction. Maybe we'll get to talk about this at the end. Uh, and in yes, as you mentioned, I currently hold a position as an assistant professor of medical anthropology in the Department of Cultural and Social Studies at Creighton University in Omaha,
1: Nebraska. Okay, so medical anthropology is a very interesting subfield in anthropology and also it has already contributed to our understanding of medicine, especially biomedicine in this world. And your book is definitely a very important contribution to this field. So I'm thinking about maybe we can elaborate more on your the connection between your personal background and this research project to our audience. So. Specifically, what brought you to this book project on cervical cancers in post-communist Romania? What makes you realize cervical cancer is a topic deserving further attention and an ethnographic study?
0: Well, it's an interesting story um, because it really illustrates how empirical anthropological research can be and also how flexible as ethnographers we must be. Uh, Originally, as a graduate student working toward my PhD, at Tulane University uh, in New Orleans, my project was to study something completely different. My project was to study infant mortality in rural Romania. And Romania was about to join the European Union in 2007. And despite very accelerated um, urban development, quite cosmopolitan, you can say urban development, uh, still in rural areas, public health indicators were those of a low-income developing country, and my idea was to document in a way in real time. I was very interested to document in real time in a way, kind of a salvage ethnography almost, document in the, in real time these very very quick and emergent transformations and these disparities between urban and rural. Um, um. by looking at um, the social and cultural determinants of infant mortality. So that was my original idea. And I started doing, I secured funding, I was fine, I was in a good shape. And I started doing field work in the same location where I ended up doing the the research about cervical cancer. So I started doing field work at the time I was pregnant with my second child. And once they noticed my condition, People literally stopped talking to me about um, babies dying at birth, and I cannot really say that it was a taboo to talk to a pregnant woman about babies dying at birth. But it was more about them being considerate toward me and not wanting, to, trying to protect me, I guess, right? Because after all, I'm I was a researcher, but I'm also a human being, and I was a woman, a pregnant woman. So this was something you don't talk about with a pregnant woman in their in their understanding. And in all honesty, although I saw myself as this objective researcher, somewhere in the back of my mind, I didn't really want to hear um, stories about perinatal suffering and death. So I was in a way relieved, but I was also panicked because I was suddenly left without my dissertation topic <laughs> during field work. Uh, So it was a major crisis situation, and I called my PhD advisor, uh, Adeline Masquelier. I called her back in the US, and I told her that I was left without a topic to research. So Adeline advised me, first of all, she asked me, okay, what are the things that people talk to you about, right? Listen to what people still talk to you about. And I said, well... I'm receiving a lot of unsolicited advice about pregnancy <laughs> and people would really talk about reproductive health, the reproductive issues, right? Nothing about infant mortality, but a lot of things about reproduction. But Adeline even more, she said, well, pay attention to what people would volunteer to share with you, right? Even when they are unprompted, what are the things that are on their radar? Right? What are the things that they really, really want to talk? And at that time, Uh, we talk about 2008 at this point. So at that time, the Romanian government had started a national HPV vaccination campaign. So HPV stands for the human papilloma virus, which has been linked to cervical cancer, but also other types of cancers. So the Romanian government had started this very big national vaccination campaign against HPV. And people would uh ask my opinion about this is it good is it bad what would you do if you had a daughter would you vaccinate it right they they targeted girls so um unprompted they were talking about this it was very much uh, definitely something in their mind so in a way, you can say, I know, comparing myself with a much more famous anthropologist, but why not, right? We learned from, from our predecessors. In a way, I ended up doing what famous British anthropologist Edward Evans Pritchard did when in the 1920s, he went to Southern Sudan without a real research, research agenda. Um, and he went there and just kind of pay attention to what people were talking about, right? And Everything that was happening was explained by the local people in Southern Sudan through witchcraft, right? Everything was about witchcraft. So he ended up studying witchcraft because it was definitely a way of people to see the world through the lens of witchcraft. So in a way, I did the same. People were talking so much about HPV that it really prompted me to look at the cervical cancer situation, And once I look at the numbers, I was surprised of how high both incidence and mortality by cervical cancer was in Romania. Um, And the numbers were remarkably high, not only when you compare them to Western European countries or the average European numbers, but also even to neighboring countries like Bulgaria and Ukraine and uh, Serbia and Hungary, right? So Eastern European countries, Um, So I definitely realized that I had found a new point of entry into my research about healthcare and healthcare transformations in the post-communist world. So that's how I ended up uh, looking at at cervical cancer and, and studying this.
1: Thank you for sharing this very interesting and very amazing journey. I think for anthropologists, it's always very important to know what the people in the field really care about. And this focus of the local people will always be something important in the final analysis in ethnography. So you also talk about vaccination and we will revisit it later. So now let's talk about your field site. You conduct your field work mainly in a small town in southern Romania called Rostio. So what brought you to this what brought you to this place and could you let us know more about your know, this this is this, this small town
0: um so i was born and raised in a really big very cosmopolitan university in northern romania it's the biggest city in the northwestern part of romania the the, the biggest city in transylvania which i tell my american students transylvania is a real place so um my field site in roșior was as foreign to me as possible while still being in my home country, uh, because Rochiori uh, and I got there because I had some in-law relatives. So that was the point of entry into the field, and this really helped with building trust and giving me some legitimacy in people's eyes because I, I kind of belonged through my in-laws. But the place was so different from everything I had experienced until then in Romania. Um, not only it was really small, but it was also quasi rural and um, it, it's in southern Romania, which comes with a whole set of different kind of historical traditions. And um, so, so it's very different in many ways. And although I was a native anthropologist, after all, I was not really at home in Rochior. So it really helped with keeping that kind of uh, interrogative gaze and that distance that we anthropologists have to practice right in the, in the field. And you know you're not at home when you don't get people's jokes, right? That was st- something that I struggled constantly with. They were making jokes and I just couldn't get that type of humor. So I was, okay, they are different. I'm in a different place. And of course, they have their different dialect and all that. But uh, I was still in Romania, but in a very different slice of Romania than the one that I I was used to. Uh, It was definitely a different mental landscape as well. Uh, And Rochure was in some ways ideal for me to document these rapid historical transformations that I was interested to document because it's a small town indeed, but it's also just two hours away from the country's capital city of Bucharest, right? It's actually less than two hours away by train, maybe two hours away if you take a car because of how bad the roads are, but still. So it's it's very close, geograph- it has a geographical proximity to the biggest and most cosmopolitan city in Romania while still being itself a very small quasi-rural town. And it also is, it was interesting because people would practice uh, subsistence agriculture and you have this kind of a bankrupt, uh communist um industries. You still you can still see this kind of a industrial ru- ruins, right, of the former communist factories that are now just left. Uh, all this kind of a landscape that it's very, it's very haunting in a way, right? All the the signs of the past, industrial ruins, and all that. People practicing subsistence agriculture, a lot of un- un- unemployment going on, um. But also, and under development, right at the time of my fieldwork, there was no gas in the community, even running water. Actually, when I was there, they started to actually put a sewage system in place. So you have all that, but at the same time, a lot of people commute daily for their day jobs to Bucharest. And they are quite cosmopolitan in this mobility. Um, uh, so it was really... The place really gave me a good insight into life in contemporary Romania and especially in these tensions, emergent tensions between local
1: and global values and practices. Fascinating. It sounds like an amazing place for field work. And also, you also talk about your positionality is also very complex because basically you are from Romania and you study Romania, so theoretically you are a native ethnographer, as you mentioned. But you know, in a place like Romania with ethnic diversity and a cultural pluralism, and especially in a place like Rocio, your own voice is, I would say, somewhat dissonant with your interlocutors, and as you mentioned. So I want to extend this opinion further. So could you please let us know in what ways your complex positionality manifests itself in fieldwork and in your book?
0: Well, yes, it is true that I am a Romanian woman, like my research subjects. Um, I Like some of them, like some of the women I interview, I myself gave birth um, mm-hmm. n- more than once, right, twice, in Romanian public hospitals. And I have quite compelling personal recollections of the communist years and of the post-communist transition. Um, and also my identity and my experiences really helped me establish trust, which is so important when you do anthropological fieldwork, right? So it it was easy in a way to establish trust and um It made interactions with the women from Rochior more natural and more organic. Um, As I say, they already understood who I was in so many ways, right? And I had a certain level of legitimacy in their eyes. However, I am differently situated um, through my place of origin, as I say, big city, northern Romania, through my level of education, there were very few of them who had college-level education. Most of them did not. Um, but especially, I I was differently and I am differently situated through this whole anthropological endeavor to denaturalize knowledge uh, about reproductive health and about cervical cancer in Romania. You know how often when you ask people, right, research participants, uh, you ask them questions, people would say like, well, that's how we do things around here, right? So they take things at face value, right? That's something normal. That's why you always are looking for that key informant who would 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 have a certain level of kind of a reflecting upon things and reflecting upon practices rather than just saying, Well, that's who we are. That's how we do things around here. So that I I think that's where I'm different and I'm situated differently because I had this constant interrogative gaze and this constant kind of a, I uh I was in a process, right? That what we anthropologists do to denaturalize knowledge and not take at face value things, right? And kind of uh understand why things are the way they were, right? So asking a lot of why questions rather than just what and who and when and where. So I yeah, think that, right, that's exactly. that's in the, in that way I'm differently situated. But there were indeed a lot of things that I have in common with this way. I, I am a Romanian woman after
1: all. Interesting. So basically I can see from your you know your description that you actually turn your very complex positionality into your resources in your fieldwork, which is very, you know, good experience and also I'm very happy to learn from it. So, in the following conversation, I want to discuss your book from four inter- interconnected entry points, which to me is very useful for a reader to capture important information in your book. And these entry points include house, gender, post communism, and also temporality. So, first, and let's talk about health and disease as this is, you know, an ethnography of medical anthropology. So, at the first chapter of this book, is a hysterical tribute. Following this design, we will start from history. So, what were the policy shifts in Romania on reproduct- health, reproductive health and abortion from 1949 to now? Could you please? Give us a short version of this hysterical shift.
0: Yeah, so the reproductive policies of the last seven decades really reflect Romania's very tumultuous historical transformations. It's I think that you can really read history through the way reproductive policies have shifted. And when I say reproductive policies is mostly um policies regarding abortion, access to abortion. And I think we should start even before 1949, because there is a prehistory, if you want, or a, or a preliminary history, rather, to abortion policies um, before even before the Second World War. So abortion had been partly liberalized from 1937 all the way to 1948. Um, and then what happened in 1948 after the war is that abortion was criminalized uh, all the way to 1957, when it was liberalized again, until 1966. So up to this point, up to 1966, um, these um, changes in policies closely followed the Soviet Union's lead. So, the, I'm talking here actually specifically about the criminalization of abortion in 1948 was pretty much the policy was copy and pasted, if you want from the Soviet Union's policies, and similarly, the liberalization of abortion in 1957, similarly follow very closely the policies regarding abortion in the Soviet Union. And Romania was not unique in following the Union. Uh, other countries from the Communist Eastern Bloc did the exact same thing, right? So the, these policies were dictated from Moscow. Um, and just to give a context for, for the listeners who may not remember this, sometimes I have to explain this to my students as well. So after uh, World War II, Romania became a Soviet Union communist satellite and a communist ally. It was never a Soviet republic, right? So it was never part of the Soviet Union as a republic, but so it it maintained its if you want to say, sovereignty as a country, but in reality, all the politics was dictated from Moscow, especially in the 50s, Um, including reproductive policies and abortion policies. Um, Also, it's important to note that abortion policies had nothing to do with beliefs in life from conception, like we are used to in, I don't know, countries Catholic countries, right? Like Ireland and Argentina and even Poland, right? Especially present day Poland. In these countries, Catholic countries, abortion policies and the whole uh, conversations about abortion access or restrictions are actually uh, related to religious uh, practice and belief and values. That was not the case at all, because in communist countries, right, they were atheistic countries. So it was it had nothing to do with life from conception. It had everything to do or, or these are secular policies and they were driven by uh, workforce dynamics. And it's kind of interesting to think about because in both cases, liberalizing and criminalizing abortion, it had to do with uh, workforce dynamics. Abortion was liberalized when there was a need for women to be in the workforce themselves, right? Not to be tied to what uh, Lenin called the petty domestic life, right? So you want to liberate women, um, from 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 the domestic sphere. To you want them to be active participants in the workforce. You liberalize abortion, right? So that they don't are they don't become mothers or they are not tied to motherhood. They 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 can spend time as active workforce, but then. When you do this, you have to think about what about the future workforce, right? So we need to build future workforce. So then you criminalize abortion in order to force women into motherhood. So then you build a future workforce. So these policies were absolutely secular and they had to do with these conflicting needs of the communist systems of having present, but also future workforce. So this happened both in forty eight when abortion was criminalized, and then in fifty seven when abortion was liberalized with in the name of kind of a controlling this dynamic in with the workforce. After Stalin's death, the Soviet Union and the other communist uh, satellites became increasingly more liberal, especially in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, and this is when Romania took a completely different pathway. So what happened in Romania is that Nicolae Ceaușescu um, came to power in 1965 as the Secretary General of the Romanian Communist Party. And in 1966, he promulgated Decree 770 that criminalized abortion. And this is when he took a different pathway than the other communist countries that were becoming increasingly more liberal toward abortion. Romania became increasingly more um, um enacting more restrictions. Um, So between 1966 and 1989, when Ceausescu was finally executed during a bloody um, anti-communist revolt, um, Romania had one of the most draconian pro-natalist anti-abortion policies in the entire world. And actually, uh, Margaret Atwood was apparently inspired by Romania's policies of those times when she imagined the dystopia from The Handmaid's Tale um, after 1989 uh, abortion became liberalized again for the first trimester and the reason I spent so much time I spent a full chapter in my book um, looking at these uh, changes in abortion policies and reproductive policies more generally Um is because uh, especially for the older women that I interview for my project, these changes in reproductive policies um, really made them learn that the whole, they made them actually, I think women were actually understood that the the reproductive policies landscape were very unstable and also very untrustworthy. They couldn't trust the state, right? the landscapes were so constantly shifting and constantly changing that they didn't really trust whatever they were told to do. In this case was, hey, cervical cancer prevention is good for you. And for many of them, there was also a level of personal uh, trauma because many of them had to go and try to, to, to seek abortions on a black market of abortion that really left very enduring traces for for some of them.
1: Thank you. I think your analysis in the chapter one and also your introduction to your chapter one you just made are fascinating because you show how abortion policy are actually interwoven with the ideology of the regime and also the practical demands of the regime. And even the, the policy has already passed, but expected still haunted the you know the current day the present day people's mind people's trauma so it's very fascinating so in discussing healthcare, especially reproductive health issues in today's Romania in, in your book you develop the concept of systemic contingencies how can you understand this very important concept in your book could you please elaborate more on this point
0: yeah I, I, I was trying to to propose a concept uh, to make sense of the multiplicity of factors that shape Romanian women's responses to cervical cancer prevention. So I propose the concept of systemic contingencies exactly as an umbrella term, in a way, to account for these many factors that I ended up realizing inform their decisions to engage or not engage in cervical cancer prevention. Um, and the factors I, the, the the many the many things that I found that I, fi- I find to be part of 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 the uh, or shaping people's response women's responses to um, uh, cervical cancer prevention, they are systemic. So I call them systemic because they reflect structures that unfold historically. And examples of these are reproductive policies that I just detailed. Right, this is in chapter one. Patriarchy, patriarchy understood as kind of a patriarchal understandings about women's bodies, about reproduction, um, religion and religious practices, um, failed healthcare reforms, corruption, even if it's not the big corruption, it's kind of a, you can say, small corruption in the form of kind of a petty gifts and things like this, but still all these are systemic, as I say, structures that unfold historically. Um But also they are contingent because they are contingent on everyday, quote unquote, accidents of life, if you want. So in a way, systemic contingencies is maybe just a fancier way to say perfect storm. But I don't like the the metaphor of the storm because... It assumes that things are somehow natural and unavoidable, like a storm would be, right? While in reality, these factors are social, cultural, and political constructs, right? We anthropologists, social scientists in general, we know that things are not natural. These are constructs. Um, The notion of systemic contingencies also overlaps to a certain extent with other concept proposed by, by other anthropologists like syndemic and recursive cascade. And in my book, I explain a little bit what extent they overlap with syndemic and recursive cascade, but they're also different because exactly because of the focus on everyday life's accidents, the contingencies, right? the contingencies of everyday life. So this is why, while these are big, broad structural forces there is also a certain
1: a certain level of contingency to how things happen and unfold thank you for your explanation i think uh, systemic contingency is a concept perfectly capture how structural forces and accidents in everyday life like you mentioned uh, work together actually to produce outcomes in social life because social life is extremely complex we cannot just see the structural forces all the accidents so i think it's a very useful concept for further for future medical anthropological research and so now let's talk about gender and inequalities in your work so cervical cancer crisis in romania is an issue about gender definitely you have already mentioned this and so this crisis can be perfectly illustrated by the absence of men in reproduction so would you mind telling us about the multifaceted reproductive invisibility of men in Romania and how has this invisibility resulted in negative consequences for women's reproductive health?
0: Yeah, uh, something that I did not really expect during my field work was how many women um, who lived uh, through their reproductive years during communism, mm. how many of them were willing to share with me unprompted Uh, their underground abortion stories. Uh, I did not even dare to ask them, but we build enough trust. So then we say, okay, you have to understand if they were just kind of telling me their reproductive life histories and a big part of reproductive life histories for those who lived their life, their reproductive years under communism was having one or two or more underground abortions, right? There was a whole black market of abortion and uh, um, they would tell me in quite detail how they went about securing an abortion on the black market of providers, right? Of those who provided abortions. Um, And listening to their stories, I noticed something interesting. I noticed that all the networks of people involved in this black market of abortion uh, there were various actors, right? Or a, a lot of network, interesting networks, very informal networks, of course. But I noticed that they were very gendered. And I started to notice the absence of men, or maybe not necessarily absent, because there were some men in various roles, but they were quite invisible. So then I started to look more... I, in, I, I started to look in their stories, not only in the stories about abortion, but generally speaking looking at, at my topic about cervical cancer, I really started to look, where are the men in, in this whole uh, cervical cancer prevention, right? And generally speaking in, in reproduction. So I started to look closer to see where were the men in reproduction in general, and they were not necessarily absent, but quite invisible. And even when they were trying to be visible, they were quite tentative and having a hard time to claim a role in reproduction. And, this really tied to the cervical cancer prevention because one of the negative consequences of men's invisibility in relation to cervical cancer prevention is that women of Roshiori had a quite patriarchal understanding of a woman's body and of womanhood in general. So to give you an example, some of them justify not going to see an OBGYN by saying, you know what, I'm not even a very much of a woman anymore, so I don't need to go and see a woman's doctor. And they re- they refer by saying I'm not a woman anymore, I'm not so much of a woman anymore. They refer to the fact that they were menopausal. So it was quite an explicit, not even implicit. I would say quite an quite an explicit equation of womanhood with reproductive potential right once you're not you're done with your reproductive potential you're not even a woman anymore which is definitely a very patriarchal understanding of what a woman body is and what a woman does right when you um when you uh, celebrate motherhood but kind of a uh, hide or consider female sexuality dirty right that's a very patriarchal approach to to womanhood and uh that was very unfortunate and had direct consequences on cervical cancer incidence and mortality rates because um, that's exactly the time when you're menopausal, right in your your 50s and 60s, when the risk for cervical cancer is higher. Cervical cancer tends to be a slow growing cancer. So, and it's also tends to be asymptomatic. So um, it's very important to be able to actually detect it as early as possible. And not going to see a woman's doctor, as they call it, right, because you don't feel you're a woman anymore, has very dire health consequences for these women. But it definitely is tied to patriarchal understanding of womanhood and a woman's body. Um, Similarly, some other women uh, fear that their husbands would not allow their bodies to be exposed and scrutinized by medical practitioners uh, it was kind of a my body belongs to my husband. Um, and of course, engaging in cervical cancer prevention requires an unveiling of the body, right, in front of a medical practitioner. And some of them were uneasy, were, were, yeah, were apprehensive about doing that, feeling that they will kind of expose their bodies to someone else than their husbands, and uh their husbands could make that kind of claims over their own bodies being scrutinized.
1: I, I personally would say all these observations are shocking and extremely insightful. It's, you know, all these observations perfectly show how patriarchy still operate in today's healthcare sector and also reproductive house. It's just fascinating. And I recommend all the readers, all the audiences to read this chapter about Men's invisibility in Romania's reproductive health. It's just very insightful. So let's turn to an exciting topic in your book, the HPV vaccination. So like in many other countries, HPV vaccination undergoes feminization in Romania. Can you let us know how it happens and you know, it's linked to the absence of men in reproduction.
0: Yeah, because of its direct connection with cervical cancer, the HPV vaccine was originally approved worldwide, including in in the US, only for girls, right? So originally it was uh, um, the FDA approved it for girls. However, the HPV, the human papilloma virus, is also linked to other cancers like throat cancer and anal cancer and penile cancers. Uh, Also HPV is mainly transmitted through sexual intercourse. So targeting adolescent males made sense and it was later approved and recommended um, by, by many countries. However, in Romania, although the vaccine that they use was approved for boys, it was never, the boys the boys were never included in the um hpv vaccination campaigns um and uh this has important consequences because the unvaccinated boys of today become the invisible men of tomorrow when it comes to reproduction the message is that females only are responsible for reproduction and its consequences and also for reproductive care of all sorts, preventive and everything else. So in a way, this feminization of the HPV uh, re-inscribes again the notion that womanhood is defined by reproduction mostly. So I I found that very interesting. And uh, there were discussions between Romanian parents and the Romanian health officials as to why not include the boys. And the Romanian government said, well, we decided it's not cost-effective. But that was that was a very stupid and kind of a bureaucratic argument um, that ignored the reality of how HPV is transmitted. Um, and we know that the best approach is in fact, to target both boy, both girls and boys, we know, I mean, Australia and New Zealand did just that with very good results to the extent that they stopped seeing cervical cancers, in right? The program has been the vaccination for boys and girls in Australia and New Zealand went long enough so that now they start to see much, much lower incidence in cervical cancer. So we know this is working. This is an effective vaccine that works, but for it to work, you have to actually give it to both boys and girls, because this is how HPV gets transmitted. Um, And beyond the practical consequences of diminishing incidence rates is also the notion that you basically reinforce the same patriarchal approach to um, uh, reproduction, which is only women are responsible for reproduction. So that's why I'm saying that you re-inscribe the same kind of a vicious circle of um, the next generation of invisible men at least in the case of Romania.
1: Yeah, I'm from China and I can see basically the very similar feminization of HPV vaccination in China. And I think basically it is a global phenomenon and it deserves further attention in the future so now let's turn to another very exciting topic so as a researcher i'm also interested in official narratives such as rumors and urban legends and conspiracy theories and this is also your research interest so you have a section in this book exploring the rumors related to Romania hpv vaccination and i know you also have an article published in uh, medical anthropology quarterly which is also about the motif of corrupted purity in these rumors uh, and i read this article and i think your analysis is super helpful, super insightful. So could you please share some of your findings about these rumors with our audience, especially how these rumors express Romanian citizens' anxiety in the post-communist era and help them to navigate the transformations and all the uncertainty in this era? Thank you.
0: Yeah, so... It started with, so we, uh, you and I, Yadong, have the same uh, doctoral supervisor, right? Adeline oh, yeah. Um And she's an Africani- Africanist. Um, and she made me read lots of books that apparently had not much to do with Romania, but I'm very grateful to her for, for forcing me to do this because these books, a lot of books about Africa, right? And colonial Africa and post-colonial Africa, they... I learned so much from from reading these books and they were so useful in in many other ways. Um, Because I think there are a lot of similarities actually about the post-colonial words and the post-communist words. So they were very useful to me. But one way in which these books were useful was exactly learning and realizing how much rumors play a role in expressing citizens anxieties in this kind of a very unsettled landscape, so very rapid political and cultural transformations. So the one book that Adeline made me read, and I'm very grateful for that, was Louise White speaking with vampires. I learned so much from that book, right? So Louise White, she's not she's not an anthropologist, she's a historian, but for us anthropologists, it's so useful to, to read uh, her, her books and her, she has more than one book, right, on the topic. She looks at rumors in colonial East Africa. And I realized reading uh, Louise White's book how much this also applied to what the women I interviewed were talking about. Because oftentimes I would ask them to talk about the HPV vaccine or the cervical cancer and they would take long detours addressing a lot of rumors that apparently had nothing to do with the topic. But in reality, it had to do with people's anxieties over things that were not clear, right? And actually, Louise White talks about how uh, rumors link um, actual politics with the politics of representation, right? It provides people with alternative channels to substantiate things that they just they are not they are not. Um, they're not addressed to official channels of information, right? So everything that is not addressed in official channels, people still need to make sense of, right? People are still in their quest for meanings, right? It's, it's a quest for meaning and rumors work very well uh, in this way. Um, to express also people's vulnerability, uneasiness about these transformations, um. And what's also interesting about rumors and also about gossip to a certain extent, and in terms of gossip, I'm thinking about Nico Besnier. He has a really good book about gossip, right? That I highly recommend you you may have read it as well. Both gossip and rumors reorder the world. And also what's interesting about gossip and rumors is that they are full of inaccuracies, right? But exactly the inaccuracies of of some of these stories make them interesting and credible sources of information because they give us an insight into what really is going on in people's minds. And I find that the women who talk to me, in some cases, about various rumors, some about ecological anxieties, Chernobyl was brought into question, right? Uh, Pollution of bodies, all all kinds of things, food right? Rumors about food being polluted and other things. Um, there are a lot of inaccuracies, factual inaccuracies. However, it even if these stories were factually inaccurate, where they could give us an insight into people's minds was the relationships between things, right? So factual inaccuracies, but accurate relationally. So it really gives us an insight into how people perceive the connections between various actors, right, that various factors and various characters that populate political and cultural um, uh, dynamics, right? So it really gives us a very accurate way of reading what's on people's minds, even though they are not factually accurate. And um, I think yeah, Louise White exemplifies this very, very beautifully with those examples, with, I don't know... um, doctors right in colonial Kenya and the doctors uh, they don't have enough um, uh, medical supplies so they have to boil the the gloves the medical gloves right they have to boil them to re-sterilize them so then people enter the dispensary and all they see are these hands boiling and of course then the rumor spreads that the 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 colonial powers are eating humans, right? They are cannibals, right? Because you see the hands boiling. So this kind of uh, misreadings of what's going on, but they are actually very accurate in kind of expressing anxieties and vulnerabilities um, and the way of seeing the world and reordering the world that's very much disrupted by the colonial power in that case and the communist power in Romania's case.
1: It's fascinating. I, I mean, I'm always you know, getting excited when talking about rumors because it's essentially paradoxical. It is, first of all, emerged in the context of extreme uncertainty, but telling rumors this practice itself is a practice of seeking orders and meanings like you mentioned. So it's just fascinating. And I also recommend everyone to everyone, you know, who are who is interested in rumors and urban legends to read Speaking with Vampires. It's a fascinating book. And I think rumors are especially important and flourishing in post-communist contexts. So I think it's time for us to turn to the third entry point of our discussion about post-communism. So in the post-communist era, the emphasis of state-led healthcare has changed from secondary and secondary and tertiary care to primary care, what impact has this shift bring about Romanian women's reproductive health? Could you please elaborate on this point?
0: Yeah, so indeed, um, healthcare has shifted from tertiary and secondary to primary care, uh, mostly mostly with creation of family doctors uh, that work as gatekeepers to specialized care. So this is true in case of Romania and actually other former Eastern European countries that are not former communist countries from Eastern Europe, right? So that shift happened in the whole region after 1989. But also healthcare has shifted also from state subsidized universal care to insurance-based care. And especially for older generations, this created a lot of confusion about the appropriate points of entry to care. Um, People struggle to understand the entitlements and the obligations brought about by insurance-based care. And for many of them, insurance-based care brought a depersonalization of medicine. Because for most people, uh, especially in rural areas, in Romania, what they were used to was to bring a gift um, or an envelope with money to the specialist and thus craft a more personal and personalized connection with the medical care provider. And with that gone, uh, the women that I interviewed were quite reluctant to seek preventive care, right? And cervical cancer preventive care. They felt quite intimidated to navigate this new impersonal networks of care that you access with your national insurance card, rather than with a nice box of chocolates that you give to the provider. So um, they were quite confused and quite intimidated by these new regimes of healthcare. And it really felt, paradoxically or not, it felt more impersonal than just give a gift to your provider, something that they were used to do. Um, So that was a big challenge, and many of them were quite confused as to where even I'm supposed to go, right? So it was very hard for them to figure out what's the appropriate point of entry into healthcare. And it was very interesting, especially when I had like small focus groups, if you want, right? Or kind of having more informal dialogues with several people at the same time, especially people belonging to different generations, right? And see how younger generations and older generations had different understanding of where you're supposed to go to, to look for healthcare and what kind of a care is available and how you go about this. Um, sometimes I would just, I didn't even have to ask questions, just witness the, they will ask each other questions, right? Which was very interesting again to see this emergent dynamics and how each generation understood differently what was going on in healthcare, but also how confusing the whole landscape was for for everybody.
1: So now I want to turn to your ethnographic writing about post-socialism, post-communism, as you used this term in your book. So in your book, you skillfully use some personal connections of medical experiences in post-communist Romania, and these connections are very detailed and of great ethnographic value, showing how the material instru- infrastructure and interpersonal interactions actually shape individual citizens' perception of the medical transformations in post-communist era. So what motivated you to use these personal materials in your ethnographic writing?
0: As I mentioned before, although I'm differently situated, I am myself a Romanian woman um, and I had to navigate reproductive medicine in several instances and i took notes initially just for myself um but i decided to include them in the book with the idea that such first person accounts um can give readers a more complete perspective um in a way it's like it's a kind of a autoethnography if you want um that 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 i think it adds something to the book and indeed i receive uh, A lot of feedback on that, even from the initial reviewers that reviewed the book as a manuscript proposed to the press. um, They said that it really adds something to the book, and other people told me the same. But also, I have to confess, uh, in a way, I wanted also this to be a testimony for my own children. After all, it's the story of how they came into the world and of the very particular set of historical and even material circumstances of their own births and how they came into the world. So I think there is a kind of a testimony for the next generation and for my own children to include part of these stories in the
1: book as well. Fascinating. I think writing post-socialism and post-communism is a really hard work and including personal experiences with the regime, with the post-communism, with the post-communist environment is a very useful approach, actually. So the other question is about the imagination of the state. So ambiguous imagination of state governance in post-communist period of time is another topic of your book. So basically, the state is simultaneously powerful and weak It is powerful because it can still very effectively intervene in personal and private life. But it is also weak because it can always cannot, you know, provide the infrastructure needs, infrastructure, you know, demands to the people. And how does this complex and ambiguous picture form among post-socialist citizens? How do people express their ambiguous understanding of the state in their narratives could you please you know talk about it
0: I was thinking about qualifying the state as powerful and I know that in the book I talk about this a lot but I've been thinking that that can indeed be amended a little bit and rather than powerful, maybe talk about intruding, right? Because power, power has very shifting qualities, right? What is power after all, right? Some things can appear as powerful while also some things can appear as weak. So probably a better way to talk about the state being powerful is that the state being perceived as intruding and to a certain extent powerful. And especially when it comes to cervical cancer prevention, people had definitely contradictory claims and expectations. And I talk in the book about uh, the state being both too much and not enough, right? The, when it comes to the to the cervical, especially to the HP vaccine campaign. But generally speaking, in other ways, related to other fields, people would... would perceive the state as, at the same time, too much and not enough. And after 40 years of the communist rule, people's reflexes were both to expect benefits but also to contest the state overreach. And with the HPV vaccine, these impulses, these contradictory impulses, were very much at stake, were very much exercised because people wanted, at the same time, the protection of free medical care, right? The protection that a free vaccine, after all, the vaccine was provided free of charge. Um, So they wanted that kind of a protection, but also contested the vaccine and its supposed benefits on the grounds of restricting their freedom of choice. So that was very interesting, again, to see this this contradictory impulses and how people try to navigate around these contradictory impulses and, and making claims and having expectations that were hard to actually come to terms with, right, for themselves as well. And maybe the whole rumors, the the, the generating rumors, was also in, a, in in part a response exactly to to people's uneasiness about what to expect, what we need what the state can give us, right, and trying to make sense of the state being both powerful and powerless. (laughs) So this is where you have the rumors, right, to make sense of this.
1: I think uh, doing too much but not enough is a very interesting phrase, and I think it perfectly depicts what people think about and what people imagine the state in a very special period of time after communism. and. Let's yeah. talk, talk but it's that. also, Please it's also ahead. it's
0: too much, too much and not enough, not too much, but not enough, oh, right? Yeah. So it's end, right? So it's exactly, both things are in one, right? Too much and not enough at the same time, which makes it so hard to navigate and, and to imagine. It's also not only about navigating what the state gives you, but also it starts with actually imagining the state, right? Imagining the a state that it's both too much and not enough.
1: Exactly, exactly, I totally agree it's about actually if we think about the state as a concept, it's ambiguous actually. We actually cannot have a very specific very accurate description of it, but we will have many actually mutually conflicted description of it. So I think it's essentially the nature of the state. So apart from the public hospitals managed by the state, Nowadays in Romania, private and NGO-funded clinics have become available for Romanian women. So what does choosing these alternatives mean to Romanian women?
0: Yeah, the very existence of private clinics, especially private birthing clinics, was another source of conflict <laughs> and feeling conflicted. Uh, most people were conflicted about going to a private clinic because on the one hand... uh the ability, the, the, just the ability to access private care was seen as, was coveted, was something that you would want to have, right? Because it meant, it was seen as participating in a globalized consumerist culture uh, that was monetized, right? So it was seen as something that you would like to be a global citizen after all, right? Um, giving birth in a clinic that looks like a luxurious Western clinic. Uh, where all you need to bring with you is your credit card. You don't need to bring anything else because the clinic will provide everything. But of course, it's very expensive. So just the ability to access such expensive and luxurious care uh, was seen as as highly desired and definitely as a sign of participating in a global consumerist culture. But on the other hand, private care, was rightfully seen as creating and reinforcing even more inequalities in terms of health outcomes. Exactly because it was so hard to access for most Romanians, especially the women I talked to um, in this quasi-rural town of Roșiori, They didn't have that kind of money. Um, and they were looking with quite a lot of contempt to the women who were able to access that kind of care. So it definitely enforced a sense of class inequality and also healthcare inequality. Um, In a way it reminded me of the old stratified reproduction reproduces stratification. I heard a lot of kind of uh, comments that can be summarized this way. from, from the women, right? There was a lot of frustration about the new relations created by the very existence of private clinics um, and the, the new,
1: the way they reimagine accessing healthcare. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very insightful to think about consumption in post-communist era because consuming some Things purchasing some goods, it's not only purchasing that easy. It's about class, and it's about you know creating the sense of agency. So it's a very insightful description in our book, and I also recommend readers to read this chapter about how consuming new healthcare goods means in post-socialist, post-communist Romania is very interesting, and we will talk about temporality and hauntology is our fourth entry point in our discussion. So in your book, what is impressive to me is you actually analyze women's bodies as a locus of temporary haunting, which means their bodies actually link the traumatic legacies of the communist past to the present experience of post-communism. So can you give us some information some example of this hauntology of body
0: yeah so i have in my mind i have a couple of things and uh i don't know i don't know necessarily this particular one that comes to my mind is about bodies but it's definitely about hauntology so uh there are several ghostly apparitions in my book and i realized this in a way in retrospect right once i put the chapters together and i looked at how they unfolded and try to find the most logical way to, to present the unfolding of all these arguments, I realized that there were several ghostly apparitions that traversed my book. And probably one of the most compelling examples is the episode from my own experience of accessing emergency prenatal care in Roshiori, the one that I recount in Chapter 6. Um So what happened is that I I went to the hospital and the OBGYN section was undergoing cleaning, but only because a sanitary inspection had been announced and the sanitary inspection had been announced by the inspectors themselves. Um, And I had to wait my turn for them to finish cleaning the the, um, ward uh, before being seen. And if you don't mind, I want to maybe read an excerpt, a a quick excerpt from how I comment upon that episode um, on page 151-152, if that's okay. The cleaning of the section in anticipation of the sanitary inspection provided a particularly interesting perspective on the historical connections between past, present, and future. The ideological intention behind the cleaning was to align the local hospital to transnational standards of hygiene, enforced as a requirement for Romania's imminent joining of the European Union. For the brief moments surrounding the inspection, what could sense the emergent specter of a clean Western European hospital. However, the immediate purpose of the sanitation procedures. Was purely practical, avoiding a fine for non compliance. Improving the actual quality of healthcare delivery was an incidental byproduct of the hasty cleaning, not its main purpose as intended. The, that the cleaning of the section happened just because the sanitary inspection pointed to another ghost, this one from the past, the persistence of informal connections and the role they played in hospital management. So I thought that it was a good example of how past, present and future were linked um, in this case, in the institution of the public hospital from this incident of kind of the cleaning inspection and all that. Um, But when it comes to, because I think your question, I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I'm answering a question about ghosts, right? And specters and and instances where past, present and future are linked, but maybe your question is more about the female bodies, right?
1: Uh, I mean, you you have already perfectly answered my question because hauntology, you know, it could relate to actual ghost, but it also relates to something we call absent presence. It means something has already passed but have never really passed in the present. So I think medicine is actually a field that we can see this kind of absent presence. So let's talk about another thing about temporality and hauntology about religious tropes. So many of your interlocutors actually invoke religious tropes with respect to reproductive bodies. especially in chapter three, you interpret the narrative as a practice about temporality. It is a way for Romanians to remember the past, understand the present time and imagine the future. So I think it's a very creative and interesting analysis. So could you please elaborate on it a little bit to our audience about how you interpret these religious troops related to medical practices?
0: Well, prevention, so if you think about prevention as set by biomedicine, forces us to imagine the future. When you go and undergo some preventive testing, you're you're literally forced to imagine a future where you're free of disease or maybe they will discover that you carry something, right? It's this idea that somehow, even if you're asymptomatic, the disease may still be lurking around. Uh, You may carry it. Um, and this is particularly obvious with genetic testing, right? We may be at risk or we may put at we may put our our future generations at risk of carrying a disease that it's kind of somehow invisible. So definitely preventive medicine really forces us into imagining future. And actually Monica Conrad says um, in, talks in a book about uh, predictive genetics that we are all, pre-symptomatic persons, right? You don't have to have symptoms. We are all pre-symptomatic persons, right? It's just a question of discovering, right? What are the genes that may put us at risk later in life for developing something? So it's always about the future somehow. Um, But women from Rochior resisted prevention or resisted biomedical prevention on the grounds of God's will. Um, as governing people's lives, right? So it was about God's will. I will get cancer. If it's God's will that I will get cancer, I will get cancer, right? But it's very interesting to me because God's will as an alternative, is it is also an alternative way to imagine the future. After all, you imagine what God's will will bring into my life, right? But for women in Roshiori, God's will worked much better as imagining the future than biomedicine, for the simple reason that it, it helped, it, it allowed them to link future with present and even with past, right? Because in a way, God's will and what the what God's will will bring in the future for you, also it's linked to the present life, how God's will governs your present life and even your past sins or even the past generation sins, right? Uh, so to many of these women, God's will, and looking through things from a from a non secular perspective, uh, was made more sense because it provided a more meaningful, and you can say even a more logical, right, logical in a non secular logic, uh, temporal sequence. The it was a more meaningful and logical temporal sequence um, versus the inexplicable cancer diagnosis that a, a cervical cancer test would potentially result in, right? A Papa Nicolau smear, a Papa Nic- a pap smear would bring all of a sudden from nowhere, while right? God's will governs the life from past, maybe even past generations to the present and also into the future. So I, I find that many of them would actually work with this non-secular logic of prevention and the futility of prevention versus the need for prevention in terms of biomedicine. They already had a way to imagine the future. They didn't need the biomedicine's way of imagining the future through through preventive
1: testing. I mean, it's very super insightful because if we think about the operation of biomedicine and the operation of religion, we can actually find many similarities. Because in religion, there are many practices that are actually premise people an alternative future. And for biomedicine, actually doctors and many medical practitioners, they actually do the similar things. So it's totally understandable why you observe these similarities and you write it in a very beautiful way. Very interesting. Thank you so much. And so in the book, your analysis is more from an anthropological perspective than from a perspective of public health. But I can see, I can definitely see some scholars in public health and practitioners in public health will benefit from your analyses. As the author, what do you think this book can contribute to public health?
0: In the book conclusions, I envision a few practical strategies of using my ethnographic findings in the interest of public health. Um, for instance, I highlighted the importance of enrolling women in follow-up exams at the time of their first screening, um, because what happened a lot is that even women who would go and have, um, some preventive testing, uh, if for instance, they found a pap smear, an abnormal pap smear, right? Which does not necessarily mean that you have cervical cancer, but it may mean that, um, you may have it in the future, uh, oftentimes nothing would happen, right? There was no follow-up um, and this absence of follow-up for many women make futile to even go in the first place. So I think that can be a kind of a practical strategy in the light of kind of improving, right? From a perspective of public health. So that can be something that could inform public health, the public health delivery of, of, of uh, these exams. So that could be one idea. Another one that we already talked a little bit um, was vaccinating boys, right? It makes a lot of sense. And it's, again, a public health approach informed by ethnographic findings, right? I can explain why this is an important idea beyond the practicality of the fact that HPV gets transmitted through uh, sexual intercourse. So it makes sense to vaccinate boys, but also in terms of um changing a little bit the perception about uh men and their involvement in reproduct in reproduction in general and also I know it's very basic but I think it really would help from a public health perspective what about designing culturally relevant cervical cancer awareness campaigns the HPV vaccination posters were so generic and so Women could just not connect to that kind of image and that kind of message. So I think that's, again, something where ethnography can inform public health practitioners to come up with more personalized and more um, culturally relevant ways of uh, spreading the message, right, which is the public health message after all, and explaining the need for vaccination, in ways that people can relate
1: to. Absolutely, absolutely. I think they are all very helpful suggestions and I look forward to seeing what is the future of the healthcare sector in Romania. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what are you working on now? And what is next? Could you please share something with us?
0: Well, I I don't want to sound overly ambitious, but why not? Uh, the way I see this book, um, it could be maybe the first out of a trilogy. You know, I can see this as the first out of a of a three part series because in this book I pretty much only focus on women's responses to cervical cancer prevention, and I look at things through the lens of reproduction. So although the book is called the cancer within. In a way, it has quite little to do with cancer. I did interview some cancer survivors, but a lot of the talk and a lot of the things I discovered had to do with reproduction and how ideas about reproduction inform responses to cervical cancer prevention. Um, and I I talked to very few doctors in this book. That was not the focus for my book. So I see a second book focusing and the second next a second major project focusing on doctors, right? Focusing on medical providers and their approach to things. And then potentially a third one focusing on bureaucrats and the bureaucracy of, uh, of responses to cervical cancer. So for my next project, I already started doing some preliminary field work uh, to look at medical providers' perspective. And I did... um. Last summer, I did some participant observation in an oncology clinic in Romania, and I plan to continue doing more of that this upcoming summer. So in the summer of 2024, I will do more field work in an oncology clinic. And I can tell you that it was already fascinating to compare the perspective of patients and providers on seemingly the same phenomena, but it doesn't look like the same phenomena because the perspectives are so different. Plus. Uh, it's really fascinating to see the role that technology plays in managing, but also in conceptualizing cervical cancer. I learned so much that I didn't know before about cervical cancer, just spending time into the clinic and being shown the type of technology that they have for the treatment of cervical cancer. Um, So that would be a second project that I started already working on. And then, as I say, maybe a third part of the problem of cervical cancer in Romania would be an ethnography of the bureaucratic channels through which provincial programs are designed and implemented. I'm more and more increasingly interested in kind of a, the anthropology of bureaucracy. Um, in a way, something that kind of, a, I, it made me think about, um, I think Svea Closer is her name. I, I, I hope I'm right. Um, uh, chasing polio in Pakistan, uh, where she looks exactly about uh, at, at this, right? So not so much about uh, uh, the polio vaccine per se and how people receive it, but also about how these preventive programs, how the HPV, um, not the HPV, sorry, the polio vaccine um, is... Uh, Campaigns. The polio vaccination campaign is designed and implemented, and all the bureaucratic channels that play a role, and all the various um ways in which you have public health actors uh in some ways sometimes even um sabotaging the campaign, and why? So that's very interesting. So I'm kind of interested potentially in the future to research more the anthropology of bureaucratic channels through which cervical cancer is is kind of a design implemented and so on. Um, So that's something that I have in my mind for the future. Uh, But in the meantime, I have also worked on a different project of ethnographic fiction. Uh, Creighton University has generously awarded me a junior sabbatical for the fall of 2023. Um, and I use it for writing a collection of ethnographic fiction stories in a way, if you want, made up true stories, right? That's ethnographic fiction. That's how I would define it. Um, and the purpose for this was, in a way, um, to become a better writer in English, right and trying to to hone my skills in in English writing. Uh, but also to give voice to otherwise kind of a voiceless actors and characters and um, imagine these stories where um, stories that could have happened right and stories that are very rich in ethnographic details I'm still an ethnographer I'm still an anthropologist but also trying also to tell a story that appears to maybe a a wider audience
1: as well. Fantastic. I mean, the idea of a trilogy is amazing because medicine is basically a very complex, a total social phenomena. And it, it definitely makes sense to have another work about bureaucracy, another work about medical practitioner. And I'm super looking forward to your following works including your ethnographic story. And I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you in the near future. So professor Pop, thank you so much for coming to today's podcast.
0: Thank you. Adong. I'm so, I'm so glad that I uh, got to talk about uh, the book, especially with you, since we have the same, we, we have had the same uh, supervisor and uh, um, I'm, um, I'm excited to, to, read your future research since you're interested in rumors and uh, uh i'm very curious about your work as
1: well thank you so much and yeah definitely i think we have many overlapping research interests and we can definitely have further conversations in the future so in today's podcast we discussed the new book by christina pop the cancer within reproduction cultural transformation and healthcare in Romania published by Rodgers University Press. So if you are interested in how regime legacies and patriarchy work together to have a detrimental impact on women's reproductive health, or if you are interested in medical rumors and how they help us glimpse the sociocultural transformation in a post-communist context, The Cancer Within will be a book you definitely don't want to miss. Thank you for listening to New Books Network Anthropology, and we will see you next time.